Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. So today we're talking about yogic creation myths. And, you know, today I wanted to discuss what's the purpose of spiritual practice? Like, why do we do it? Why are we called to doing it? Oh, Cal, welcome. Good to see you. Cal from Trinidad. It's a joy. Yeah, we're going to talk about why we practice. What's the call to practice? Um, And so I'm going to share with you a few creation myths from the yogic um, literature. And each one of these stories points at a certain aspect of why this world is and why you are. And that will tell us why we practice. So that's kind of what we have in store for today. Before we begin, though, a disclaimer Yoga is an art and a science, and it's an art and a science designed to increase the possibilities in your own life for joy. It is not a dogma, religion, or set of beliefs. If anything, we don't like beliefs in yoga um, because it's just more mind stuff. And we think the mind in yoga is one of the strongest barriers of entry between us and happiness and joy or meaningful life. So that being said, um, what we will talk about today, you must verify in your own experience of life. So I, it would be great if you know if you have any questions, any debate, if at any time something doesn't sound like it sits well with your own experience of how you see things, um, please unmute, voice it out. We'll arrive at truth together. And more than anything, truth is not a concept. Truth is a felt, lived reality. Truth is a way of being, not a thought, not a belief. So that being said, we're looking for certain resonances, you know, in in my words and in our discussion. Look for that feeling in your heart where it's like, ah, that sounds right. I don't know why. And we'll unpack why. But for now, that's enough. That feels right. So staying in this intuitive space, let us begin. Last week, we had some very interesting discussion about the six um, or seven, I think. I think it was seven, Christina. I can't remember. Pitfalls along the spiritual path. Um, we talked all about the ways in which spirituality or the practice of, of any kind of spiritual practice can be hijacked by the ego and uh, co-opted for egoic purposes. And we talked a little bit about spiritual materialism, how at some point you might realize that the Ferrari doesn't do it for you, that quoting Goethe at the dinner party makes you seem culturally, you know, versed, but it doesn't really do it for you. And you might find that all the ways you look for meaning doesn't serve you. So then you turn to spirituality. The problem is spirituality starts to be a way in which you just play out the same patterns you were playing out before. So no real change has happened. You know, maybe you stopped collecting Ferraris, but now you're collecting crystals. It's still spiritual materialism, you know? (laughs) And we made that joke last week, like, how spiritual are we, really, if we're like a dragon hoarding jewels, as my my beloved always says. It's like that, you know, you started collecting material acquisitions. They go, no, 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 now I'm done. I've renounced the world. So I'm going to collect rare spiritual books and jewels. I'm going to collect teachers. And then at the dinner party, I'm not going to talk about Bach, the Bach concert I saw. I know that's so faux pas, so pretentious. That's not me anymore. I'm no longer the worldliness. You're like, now I'm spiritualness. Now I'm going to tell you about all the spiritual teachings I know about. 
Have you heard that Zen story? Ah, I'll tell you. You know, so your patterns haven't gone away. They've just taken on a new mask. It's dangerous because it seems like some change is happening. So on the surface, it seems like, oh, you have different friends, you're doing different stuff, you're wearing different clothes, you know, now it's white and there are beads. Um, and instead of being at the club drinking, you're at the Kirtan Center singing Hare Krishna all night. So on the surface, it looks like a lot has changed in your life. But we must be careful. We must be careful that that change is not just superficial. It's not that we're looking spiritual for a certain Instagram aesthetic. And we know that's like really in you know, these days. So there's a danger there where spirituality becomes just another thing that adds to our suffering, even though it seems like the solution. So we talked about that. Um, <laughs> someone, someone is really sweet. They commented, uh, they had their Kundalini awakening recently. That's wonderful. Thank you for the kind words and congratulations. Maybe we'll talk about Shaktipat or Kundalini awakening a little bit today, maybe at the end of class. Um, so that being said, there is a way in which we use our spirituality to look like we're changing, but not really. So that's kind of a pitfall. Then we talked a little bit about spiritual bypassing, how we use our spirituality to opt out of the struggles in life. And the key takeaway here was a lot of people back home in the ashram where I was growing up, a lot of people would come to the ashram as a way to escape um, whatever it is that was troubling them in real life. So maybe they failed in their business or they failed in their romantic relationship. So we made the joke, like you get fired and before you get fired, you say, I quit, you know, <laughs> or somebody's going to break up with you. You're like, no, 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 I break up with you. <laughs> and that's just, you know, the ways that we reclaim power and moments of powerlessness. So one way is to opt out of facing the struggles in your life by becoming spiritual and saying, oh, I'm above that now. You know, I don't need to make money like financial security, not for me, or I don't need to have stable, healthy relationships, or I don't need to know what my address is or my bank balances because I'm spiritual. I'm done with the world, you know, I'm um, in worse. You know, I don't need to care for my physical health. So we see that happen sometimes with people. Now, the joke here is that if you thought running a business was hard, try meditating. You know, it's way harder. Like if you couldn't even do that. You know, this is going to be, don't even start. It's not, it's not what you think it is. Secondly, if you weren't able to live harmoniously in like your family life, if you weren't able to resolve whatever it is complexes you had with your parents, you know, a lot of us, a lot of our complexes come from our relationship to our maternal or paternal figures. And um, there's that joke we said yesterday. Sorry to recycle the jokes, you know, we, we, we did them yesterday, but I just like them, you know, and the joke, I think I, Ram Das was quoting somebody he said, if you think you're so spiritual, go and spend a weekend with your family, you know, or parents or whatever, then quickly you'll get triggered. Um, yeah, it's, how, it's not just what we do. It's how we relate to others. So a lot of people struggle having that good relationship with their parents. So they come and look for it in a guru figure or they struggle to have a family. So they come and try to find a spiritual family, you know. Um, now, the problem is if you couldn't have a harmonious household, where all people were doing were watching Netflix all day anyway, then it's going to be that much harder to have good relationships in an ashram. Because in an ashram, people are working on themselves, you know, and that means they're bringing up complexes. They're the most neurotic, anxiety-ridden people you will ever meet, people who are working on themselves. You know, they're bringing up their shadow. So it's going to be even harder to hang out with them. So that's the irony. Like when we try to bypass, often we don't really escape anything. 
We just take what we are running from with us. And the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, who, you know, is learning about yoga from Krishna, says, oh, does this mean now that I should go to the mountains and meditate? And Krishna says, no, why? And he goes, oh, the city, it's, it's so distracting. You know, like, you can't do yoga in the city. I'll go to the mountains, I'll find a cave, and there I will sit. And Krishna says to him something to the effect of, if you go, the city will follow you. And that's a beautiful point because the city was never out here. It's in here. Wherever you go, there you are. So if you end up in the cave without actually learning to deal with the busyness of your mind, the city follows you. Relocating hasn't helped. So we talked a little bit about that spiritual bypassing. Then this one was close to my heart because this is, you know, last week's class was all the ways that I have personally failed at many points and continue to do so in my spiritual practice. And this next one is one of my idiosyncrasies that keeps catching me. And that's my desire to get high. You know, so as I mentioned last week, before I took up the spiritual practice, I was very excited about um, all the thrills of life, as you should be. You know, I was playing in a rock band. I loved all the little thrills that came about, like like whatever was put in front of me, I would snort, whatever, you know, like I enjoyed everything. Um, like the groupie experience, let's go. It was awesome. It was real. Oh, no. Um, and it was great. It was great. It was so much fun. Um, but then there was a realization that nothing was really scratching the itch. You know, like every night, no matter how wild it was, passes. And as Eckhart Tolle says, all that's left is the blurriness of tomorrow's hangover. You know, and, and that's the problem. Like every thrill. And I was so good at the thrills. I knew that if I was, you know, I was on the molly roll, I had to stay away from the coke because that would interrupt the molly. I knew exactly what time of day and like, you know, what... um how empty my stomach had to be for the perfect shrooms trip. I had everything, the playlist, everything was sorted because I was chasing the highs. You know, and that, in a way that was spiritual, it was very refining, refining my tastes for beauty and, and the high. So there I was chasing the high. It just so happened that the ways in which I was pursuing it weren't doing it for me. So as, you know, all of us eventually stumble upon meditation and it, we feel a call to it. And the, the danger here is that the pleasure we get from meditation, once we start getting good, the pleasure from meditation is way deeper, way longer lasting than some of the greatest chemical inebriates, you know. And I live in L.A. There's some of the... Um, you know, the best cocaine here in all of the world, you know, like straight Acapulco gold is amazing. And then there was that um, orange Tesla that the guy in the forest used to make that like super rare Molly pill, you know, been there, done that. But, you know, of all those highs, like meditation was better. Yes, we will speak about breath and the relationship with consciousness. I'm getting some questions and we'll talk about that. Remind me. Um, so... That being said, the meditation was so deep and so pure and so good that that became my new addiction, my new high. Now, the problem with this is, it, it, and you know, in of itself, it's not bad. It's not bad to chase pleasure. We talked last time that the yogi is not against pleasure. The yogi is just against small pleasure, as Sadhguru says. The yogi is against any, you know, pleasure that might interrupt the greater bliss of being, you know? So that being said... It's not wrong to enjoy meditation. It, it's desirable and enjoyable. But what, what is the mistake there is clinging to those experiences of enjoyment. 
you know, is chasing them because that in of itself is another attachment. So it's still repeating our patterns. Yeah, I think we do need to talk about Kundalini today. Definitely, definitely. We will. We'll talk about Kundalini. Um, so that being said, the problem here is if you cling to the high, then tomorrow you won't be able to go deeply into your meditation because you will be reliving or trying to recreate the high you had yesterday. So the fact of the matter is, like any pursuit in your life, you're going to have good days and bad days. And if your spirituality is organized around getting high, then you're going to suffer from routine problems. It's going to be hard to get on the mat every day, especially in those stretches of time when you seem to be plateauing. And that will happen. You'll have months, even years, where you don't get a samadhi, you know, you, or, or rather the deep meditative absorption experience of all this one. You know, um, and variety of factors can play what you ate, your diet, your astrological considerations, your place of living, even the communal field, you know, the way everyone is feeling right now in your city or in your country, all of that is a factor in your meditation. So it can become this obsessive compulsive need to get everything right. The perfect incense, the perfect setting, you know, just like a psychedelic trip. So after a while, we realized, okay, that's a pitfall. The, where we left off last week was this question. So if it's not about getting high, what's it about then? You know, what is the purpose of spirituality? You know, because the call that we feel to come, you know, and sit and spend an hour talking yoga philosophy or get on our mat and do asana, the call that we feel to explore this realm of spirit is very deep and it's very pure. It comes from that part of us that knows there is a little bit more to life than beer and sports. And those, those are great. But we know some on a deeper level that these things come and go and that there's something more to be done here. That's the kind of intuition. You know, the bank balances and the breast implants won't do it for me forever. Like that's kind of the, um, yeah, there's like a call to development, to progress, you know, there's, there's an evolutionary call, if you will. Mm. And, uh, you know, yogically speaking, all progress and all evolution is a myth. And as we'll discover soon, you cannot grow. You are already perfect. You are already everything you want to be. It's actually a negative quest. So, you know, a lot of uh, um, fantasy novels, it's like a quest to go and get something like the Holy Grail or some Excalibur or something. I think Lord of the Rings is a really good metaphor for the spiritual quest because Lord of the Rings is one of those anti-quests, right? They've got a ring and they've got the shiny thing, but the quest is to go and destroy it. So their quest is to go and get rid of something. That's almost exactly what the yogic quest is. Your quest is to not go and find enlightenment. And one of my favorite ways to say this is you're not practicing to become spiritual. No, no, no. You're practicing because you are spiritual. Or rather, your practice is not a linear progression towards attainment. Your practice is merely an expression of the attainment that you already are. So that's an important point. We are already where we need to be. We have everything we need to have. The problem is just um, there's something keeping us from knowing this all the time. And in the Yoga Sutra, the first line, Atta Yoga Nushasanam, and now we will talk about yoga. The next line is the definition of yoga and perhaps the summary of 7,000 years of philosophy, which is yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, translates to yoga is the complete cessation 
of the mind stuff. That is, yoga is to start thinking. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about that in previous classes. We won't really go into it. But the basic understanding is the only thing standing between you and this state of perfection, liberation, whatever it is you're, you think you're progressing towards, exactly, negative quest, um, everything you're progressing towards, you already are. You just have to get rid of the barrier of entry. And the only barrier of entry is your mind. So that being said, the purpose of practice is at its core to, dis- to, to maybe do a few things. One, to discover the meaning of life. That's one way to phrase it. The second one is to discover who you are. The third one is to discover what or who God is. And the fifth is to discover why this world is. Here's the, the clincher, though. The uh, yogic answer to all five questions is the same. So to ask yourself, who am I, is the same answer as who is God, why is the universe, why do we practice, and how do we live meaningfully? So that's what I hope to do today. I hope to answer all these questions, um, if we can, I hope. And it's very simple. It's a very simple kind of solution um, to these questions. And it's to answer these questions that we practice spirituality. Now, of course, in the pursuit of answering these questions, there are many ways that we can be pulled off the path. The stories of fallen yogis are not few and far in between. They are abundant. You know, you can't throw a rock without hitting a fallen yogi in India, you know. Um, and that's because the higher up you go, the steeper the fall. You know how last week we talked about yoga? If you just practice, but you don't know why you're practicing, it can be very dangerous because you're just going to get power. As Ramda says, the problem with power is that if you want it, you will get it. That's the problem. Um, if you practice yoga... Um, in any form, even if it's just hatha yoga, just asana, you know, and no meditation, you will suddenly find an extraordinary liberation of your life energies. You will be more energetic. You'll be able to sleep less and function more productively. You'll be able to be charming. You know, you will exude an aura of charisma. People will like you. They'll want to follow you. They'll listen to you. Um, they will put you on a pedestal and tell you you're smart. You know, you'll start to notice things. You'll be able to memorize texts. You know, you'll just be able to memorize almost photographically huge texts and be able to spout them. All these powers you will get. The problem is if you don't know why you're practicing or if you don't yet have a framework for understanding what is truly meaningful in your life, your risk is that you will use those powers to create more problems for yourself. So you will use those powers to service the ego that you knew got you into trouble. It's just now, well, you know, in the past, maybe we struggled to get dates, right? Uh, now we have all this yogic power. We have massive charisma. We're super calm. We can approach anybody at the mall and talk to them. Suddenly the dates start to roll in, right? And you're like, oh, this is pretty nice. I'm just going to go do this for a while. You know, maybe in the past we were financially dis- disempowered. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, but now... Because of all this energy we have, we can start businesses and then we're lucky. You know, the universe starts to line up. We get lucky. Like people start to buy our product. The money starts to come in abundantly. Ah, now we're on Rodeo Drive from Beverly Hills. So, you know, if a good, wise person practices yoga, the powers they get from yoga will make them a saint. But if a jerk practices yoga, they will just become a more effective jerk. 
as Christopher um, Wallace says. So that's the thing. If you don't know why you're practicing, your practice will lead you um, to fulfilling more of your cravings, which of course will create more of that thirst, more of that hunger. Um, so that's the danger with it. So we've got to know why we're practicing. So the deepest, maybe most purest intention for practice, it must start from a place where you already know, not just intellectually, but you know at your core that nothing you can experience with your senses or with your ego will ever fully gratify you or will ever fully do it for you. And there are many ways to know this. On one level, you can know this by inference. So you don't need to be a billionaire to know that money won't completely do it for you. You can extrapolate from the experiences you've already had in your life. For instance, you wanted something, you saved up, you got it. Two weeks later, you didn't care about it anymore. You know, or um, like we just now I live in a cool apartment. You know, I'm doing a little better. I got a cool apartment. And the funny thing is, I used to live in like shoebox and it was awful. And uh, you know, it was fun. I liked it. But now it's like a bigger apartment. It's like oh, so much space. I've got all my tapestries. I got my yoga studio. And then I found myself totally just freaking out about stuff. You know, like, oh, what, you know, these books didn't sell or that. Didn't, and I was freaking out stuff. And I totally forgot I was living in an awesome apartment. You know, you start to take your material things for granted. And you only really enjoy them for like a little bit. You know, you go to Sephora and you get that awesome set or, 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 or makeup that you love. Or you get, I, I, you know, look at all these guitars that I have. I've just collected and I have like nine of them lying around. And when I got them, they were really awesome. I was like, yeah, guitar. Honor your things, right? But they won't do it for you. They're never really going to scratch that itch. So some people need to really acquire lots of stuff before they get the memo. You know, they need to own 10 buildings in New York before they finally get it. You know, because at the point, there's a point at which you go, maybe I just haven't got it yet. Yeah, okay, I have 12 guitars. But what if I had 30 and a tour bus full of them? You know, yeah, I played this show and it was cool. But what if I was playing stadiums, Wembley Stadium, 80,000 people? So there's a fallacy in which you think, okay, if it's not doing it for me, not doing it for me now, maybe if I upped the quantity, it will do it for me. You know, and in a way, um, the drug experience is a good way to show you the fallacy of this thinking. You know, and lots of people commit that fallacy, even in the drug experience, and, and they die, right? But with spiritual possessions, they get to age 80 after spending their whole life, you know, the miserable sons of bitches that a lot of people are like, like just going the whole way, just fighting business, you know, just uh, climbing your way to the top. And then you own the world only to realize how lonely it is at the top, you know? Nothing was met. No deep need was met. So there are two ways. You know, you can do it from inference or you can do it from experience. Inference does require a little bit of experience. So you must in your own life have experienced, this is the key, dissatisfaction. You know, you must have become dissatisfied with your things, um, your validation. You know, you got a bunch of trophies and you felt good when you got the trophy. But then you just became frightened um, of keeping the title. You know, or um, you noticed the candy of winning was good a little bit, um, but then you needed the next thing or you needed to win more. 
So there's always this fallacy of like, what did it for me a few seconds ago, no longer does it for me now. And the only way I'm going to get it the way I got it 15 seconds ago is to get it twice as much as I got it 15 seconds ago. And then it repeats 15, and maybe a year later, you get it again. It's good for 15 seconds. And then you're like, okay, now the only way I'm going to get it the way I got it 15 seconds ago is to get it three times as big the way I got it 15. You know, you just go on this whole thing. Um, so that was the Buddha's core point. There are two ways to be unhappy, getting what you want and not getting what you want. It's kind of the catch 22. Not get what you want, anxiety, fear, striving, struggle. Getting what you want, fear of loss, anxiety, struggle, you know, so either way, um, kind of doomed. So that was what the Buddha wanted to point out. The Buddha's main point was that, and it was, it was not a pessimistic kind of like, oh, the world is suffering. He didn't mean that all is suffering because there was pain or political oppression or torture. That wasn't the way he was using the word suffering. When the Buddha said, sarvam, sarvam, Oh, sorry, dukkam, dukkam, sarvam, dukkam, which means suffering, suffering, all is suffering. He might have phrased it existential crisis, existential crisis, all is existential crisis. You know, suffering in the sense that, mm, uh, yes, I will, I will answer whether we can meditate lying down. But yeah, it's like, and thank you for the kind words, but it's like, it's like that feeling of I'm not really comfortable. I'm, it's not, that's what the Buddha meant. So you can do this two ways. One, you can do this by inference. Or you can do this by actually living your whole life and trying everything, which a lot of rock stars and famous people and businessmen have done. Business women and business people have done. So the question then is, how is it that you're here now? You know, and I would argue that some of you have done it by inference. But really, I would argue that many of you have had past lives in which you had all that stuff, you know? I would argue that we are currently sitting in the room of kings, queens, and conquerors. That you in your past life have done it, been there, done that. You know, a lot of you have been uh, moguls, like queens and kings, and just had it all. And now here you are, inferring that even the world won't do it for you. So now we've come to look for something else. And there's a third way, Ramdas points it out. The third way is faith. So maybe you haven't yet extrapolated that nothing is going to do it for you. Maybe you haven't yet experienced that nothing is doing it for you. But you're still able to find value in spirituality because of faith. So you're able to look around and say, look at all this stuff. You know, like the Buddha is saying it, the Jesus is saying it, Jesus is saying it, Muhammad is saying it. They're all saying the same thing. You know, you start to study religion, you go, surely there's something to this. You know, if so many people from so many different cultures are saying the exact same thing, then maybe they're pointing at a thing. Maybe it is, it, it's a thing, right? And maybe you have some FOMO. <laughs> so now faith has brought you here. So there are many ways in which you arrive at this state, but the state you have to be in for this venture to really profit you is what the Buddhists call divine dispassion. It's a very noble state. It's a very desirable state. And it's usually the state right before you pull the trigger with the gun in your mouth. That's the most holy moment. You know, um, we really, really welcome rock bottom. It's beautiful because when you're there at rock bottom, that's when you get it. You get that you need to change or that you need to do something else than what everyone else is telling you to do.
The predicament is unhappy people are instructing unhappy people. You know, that's the predicament. I remember one time I changed my major to philosophy when I was in college. I changed the major to philosophy. Of course, my Indian parents freaked out because when you're Indian, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, family disgrace. Which one are you? You know, so I changed my major out of a STEM field into philosophy and then my parents freaked out. So they, you know, the, their strategy was to set up a, a little you know, time with one of my family members to come and like sit and talk about um, life. And he was younger. He was quite close to me and he was young enough to be relatable to me, but old enough that he was working and, you know, in the later stages of his career. So we were sitting at tea and he was telling me, you know, with a lot of fervor, you got to think about your finances and your life and you've got to have a living and all that stuff. And I started to ask him about, oh yeah, we've got a philosophy major here. I'm so sorry for your parents. I send them my deepest condolences. When you meet another brown boy or girl who's in meditation, uh, who's in, who's in engineering, just swap with them. Be like, parents, take this one. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so that being said, um, you know, I was sitting there with this, this gentleman. He means well. You know, he meant well. He was just instructing me the way he was instructed. But when I asked him about his life goals and the way he was feeling in his life, there was intense stress. He wanted to have X amount of money before he hit 40 so he could retire. You know, he was single and, and focused on his career. And I realized there was so much dissatisfaction there, so much unhappiness. But that was the only way he knew. And so he's passing it on to me. And then if I do what he did, then that would be the only way that I know. And that would be the only way I would know how to pass it down to the people in my life. So that's the kind of tragedy. We live a life indoctrinated by a media, by a a education system, and by a cultural landscape that's passing on a derelict and defunct way to live. And you all know this. And so we're looking for alternative ways to live. So it's unhappy people teaching unhappy people, right? And the real test of your spiritual um, development isn't in your powers. It isn't in your ability to cite scripture at will. Um, It isn't even in your ability to read minds, predict people's horoscopes. People are always excited, you know, when I do that. They're like, oh, it's not that. It's, It's how happy you are, how much peace, joy, compassion, and love you have in your life, particularly in those moments when it seems like life is not working out. So you measure your spiritual success in those moments when life isn't working out for you. And you measure the spiritual success of your teachers in that same vein. You know, so that being said, we're looking for a system that works. So we're looking for happy people to teach us, you know. So we hit that point of divine dissatisfaction. And we we need to realize completely on a deep level that wow, this world is fucked. You know, like everything is hopeless. Everything is dark. There's nothing for me here. I've tried everything. It all sucks. And that's when, that, that's when it finds you. Um, and it's usually very mysterious. A book shows up in your mailbox. You know, um, you pull the trigger and the gun doesn't work. Um, but the next morning you wake up and somebody slid a pamphlet under your door for a local, local yoga class. You know, you hear about something on Instagram and it draws you to a philosophy talk, etc. You know, like something calls to you in the moment of your deepest despair. That's the truest lifeline of spirituality. 
You know, it's in that moment that you're called. Um, so that being said, the question then is, okay, so now you've gotten that call. Now what? So the pure call there is to investigate life for something more. And your intuition is that there is. And you don't know how, but you have an intuition that there is. And maybe you've seen some happy people, like you've had the good fortune of seeing some gurus, like being in the company of holy men and women. And you sense from them an aura of peace. They're exuding something that you didn't get from your celebrities or rock stars or politicians or um, patriarchal, matriarchal figures. They had something that everyone else in your life didn't have. And you're like, wait, I want that, you know? That's, that's beautiful. When you sense that, you want that, and you would follow it anywhere. So that's one way. Or maybe you yourself had an experience. So I would, you know, venture to say that a lot of us are here, you know, every week we come back and we're doing the yoga because you felt something in your yoga that was deeper and realer than anything you've enjoyed before. Something in your Shavasana, the corpse pose at the end of your practice, felt more legit to you than anything else in the world. And so now we're pursuing that. You know, we're pursuing that feeling, that glimmer of hope for happiness. So that's one of the deepest reasons to practice. Um, and it doesn't have to be that dramatic. You know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I've hit rock bottom. Um, and of course, I had a very dramatic example of the, you know, suicidal ideation kind of person. Um, it doesn't have to be dr that dramatic. Sometimes we very naturally, effortlessly and sweetly find our way into spirituality. You know, little by little, it comes into our life until it becomes our life. And in India, there's this joke. Um, a sadhu is the name we give to traveling, wandering ascetics. You know, they're wandering and they're meditating. And they beg. You know, a Buddhist like, often likes to beg because the begging is humble, humbling, you know. And Tibet and India, they're cultures that care a lot about the spiritual project. So they do donate a lot to these homeless, wandering sadhus. And they donate quite... Um, exorbitantly, since your karma gets pure, you get a lot of good karma from doing it. You know, so there might be some capitalist motive here for donating to sadhus, but whatever, you know. If it keeps us alive, it keeps us alive. We'll profit from it. <laughs> but anyway, there was a story. A wandering sadhu came and went to a house and said, um, Sister, I, I'm thirsty. Can I have a little water? So she brings the water and gives to him and he drinks. And he says, you know, come to think of it, I also haven't really had a meal today. And I see that you're cooking. Um, so if you have some food to spare, and she goes, oh, oh, please, come in, come in. Sit with us, have some dinner. You can tell us all about Buddhism. So, yeah, sadhu comes in, sits, and he has the meal. And then, you know, it comes out that the sadhu has nowhere to stay that night while he's visiting the city. So the householder says, well, you can stay here tonight if you want for one night. That's fine. And he goes, oh, oh, thank you, sister. That's really nice. Do you mind if I set up a little altar in the corner of your house so I can do my evening meditation? And she says, yes, of course. You know. So he sets up the altar and he takes his corner of the house. Later that evening, he comes and he says, um, sister, can I have the kitchen also tonight? I need to cook some food for my deities. You know, I'm having a little prasadam or ceremony for the deities. So she says, okay, you can use the kitchen. Then he says, oh, to meditate, I'm going to need the living room, actually. Do you mind if I light the incense and put up some tapestries? Before she knows it, her whole house has been taken over by the sadhu. There's spiritual stuff everywhere. The whole day is spent in worship. So this story is a metaphor for your spiritual practice. Little by little, it enters your life. 
you know? It asks very little at first. It asks you for five minutes of meditation a day. Then it asks you for one hour yoga practice on your mat. Then suddenly it asks you to put up statues and tapestries. And before you know it, your whole life is spiritual. You know, it sneaks up on you like that. Where medit- you used, you know, in the past, you used to try to squeeze meditation into your life, like five minutes in the car during your lunch break. You like put on the mindfulness app and you're doing it, you know, um, and it was hard. It was like, oh, I got to I got to find time to meditate. The next thing you know, you're trying to squeeze your life into your meditation because all you want to do is sit. And, you know, so that's kind of the way spirituality works. It doesn't have to be dramatic or all at once. It can happen sweetly and slowly. Some of you did not need that moment of despair in your life. You know, it was inspiring the whole way through. Your life was great. It just brought you there naturally. And that's a lot of good karma. You know, they say the best birth you can have is to be born in a human body, you know, with all the chakras. So you have the spinal cord, which will help you in your work. That plus access to spiritual knowledge of any tradition, a Mohammedan, uh, Christian, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, any Sufi, any tradition. The best life is when you are born with access to a true teacher or a true living religion, So which all of us are currently having, which, you know, yogically speaking means we're kind of, and I don't want to say progress or evolution, because as we'll soon find out in the final few minutes of our class, that isn't yogically tenable at all. Not in terms of progression or evolution, but in terms of your births, um, we've come a long way, so to speak, you know? So it's good to just celebrate that and notice that where we are, like here we are, you know, spirituality. And is the human form the best form? Not exactly. You know, there are many planes, but even in the Yoga Sutra, it says the devas and devis must still pass through an earthly life to get to higher states. There are higher births. Um, and a lot of you might actually be coming from higher realms. You know, the artists and philosophers among you are coming here from earth, from higher realms. But that's totally a discussion for another day. Remember, the Buddha refused to talk about any metaphysics. He didn't want you thinking about the astral planes or what happens after death. He just wanted you to focus, practice, meditate, and figure it out for yourself. Because he knew that anything he said, you would take and turn into a religion, which is not what he wanted. You know, he wanted the spirituality. He didn't want to be deified, as is happening to him now. Like, the, this is a joke, right? If Jesus actually you know, came back and Buddha came back, can you imagine how disappointed and horrified? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, guys, do you remember when we didn't stone the adulteress because judge not lest he be judged? Let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Like, do you remember when we didn't? Anyway, just funny. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so that being said, here we are honoring where we are in our path. Let's ask why we're doing this then. So I want to give you in the last few minutes three creation myths of yoga, three stories telling you why the world was created. Okay, hint, the world was never created. There's, you know, a lot of religions have creation myths, but in yoga, the creation myth is not that important because the world is seen as illusory anyway. And I'll unpack that a little bit. So three creation myths. One, there is a creator deity. His name is Vishnu and he sleeps upon a serpent on an ocean of milk, you know, I don't know why, but there he is, sleeping on the serpent in an ocean of milk. Uh, you'll notice this is very much like the Egyptian creation story, where in the beginning there was the primordial ocean named Nun, 
pure primordial matter, and out of that matter a mound arose, a solar hawk came down, and that's how creation started, you know. So it's somewhat similar. So Vishnu is here, he's sleeping. Yes, we do pick out our family in each lifetime, actually. We choose exactly the circumstances of our incarnation. Or rather, our karma as a momentum kind of takes you there. So here you are lying in the couch. And notice the the slip of tongue. Here you are lying in the couch. That's kind of my punchline today. Whoops, (laughs) I spilt it. Anyway, here Vishnu is, right, lying on the couch. And the, the creation myth is Vishnu dreams the world into existence. And think about your own dreams. Every character in your dream was just you. You know, they weren't other people. And, and we'll leave astral projection and, you know, that, that aside. That's for a different day. But today we'll just talk about dreams. I know some of you are very gifted astral projectors, so let's just not talk about that today. The other day I got straight up attacked, by the way, so I think we need to have a conversation about only going there with your guides and not following shit. Anyway, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that. But today, let's just say you're dreaming. In your dream, you are meeting people, and it seems like you're many different people at once. At some point, you are this person, and then you're this person, and then you're a dog, and then you're a building, and then you're not anybody, you're just watching as a third person. So in your dream, you have all these experiences, and when you wake up, the dream dissolves. So all the characters in the dream get pulled back into you. Pralaya, it's called, being withdrawn back. So the dream gets withdrawn back into the dreamer. So this creation myth is, Vishnu dreams the world into existence, and every time he wakes up, the dream collapses, and every time he goes back to sleep, the dream comes up. So we are now figments of Vishnu's imagination. So all of us are living in this dreamscape. And I often say this universe is just God's schizophrenia. You know, it's just this one being projecting out into existence mentally all this stuff. In the Kybalion, which is an ancient hermetic text. Yeah, actually, recently I was doing some work in the astral and some, yeah, we'll we'll talk about it when the class is over. Someone asked about the episode. (laughs) It's it's so interesting. That's the problem. Talking about the astral gets so interesting, but it can be distracting from the actual work, you know? Remember, attachment is attachment on any plane. Um, So that being said, Vishnu goes to sleep, the world gets pulled back into him. So this creation then isn't a thing. It's just a dream. It's just a fancy. Um, And while Vishnu is dreaming, he's not quite aware of dreaming. Now, how can Vishnu enjoy his dream the most? Perhaps if he starts lucid dreaming, right? So anyway, I'll just leave that aside. So that's one creation myth. The second one is there's a deity, and uh, they created the deity, creates this world. Or the the joke is there are like a few deities, like three of them. They're standing and they're going, okay, um, let's create a world. And then let's go down into the world and be in it. You know, let's create trees and parks and it's going to be fun, right, guys? Um, So they go down into the world and when they go into the world, they look around and they go, wow, this is all not real. So the world dissolves. So they go, oh, man, how do we enjoy this world? And they go, I know if we forget. So if we use that, you know, like that men in black thing where you like click the button and then you forget all that stuff. All of you are 90s kids, I assume, so we remember Men in Black. But there was that uh, memory eraser. So they do that, and then they're able to enjoy the world. You know, that's a creation myth. 
So in a lot of these creation myths, we're noticing the world is created for no other reason than for the enjoyment of this entity that's creating the world. So as we discussed earlier, your purest intention to practice is to answer the questions, who am I? Why am I here? Why is the world here? How can I find meaning in this world? And what or who is God? The answer of all of these questions is the same. And here's how we do it. When you start to meditate deeply, so this isn't just sitting and thinking, meditating, you know, we'll talk about how to meditate deeply. When you perfect that technique and you start to meditate deeply, don't take my word for it, actually go and find out, but you will notice a few things. And here are the insights that the seers of India and many other cultures have um, proposed. And this is the term, sarvam ekam, all is one. Not in this hippy dippy new age, like we're all one man at the at the festival, and then you're driving home from the festival, and then you're swearing and cussing at all the people that supposedly are part of you on the road. And not like in that conceptual way. Not in the bullshitty we're one man, so sleep with me way. You know, not like that. Because you know how people use all this stuff to like just satisfy ego things we talked about earlier. Breaking up with you because of astrological charts ghosting you because of you know, <laughs> all these ways in which we dress up our daily nonsense in spiritual jargon. Anyway, so not we're all one in that way, but the actual felt experience of oneness in meditation, when you look at the flower or look at the, the dog and you see in its eyes, not another being which you have compassion for. Because that will happen. In the first stages of your meditation, you will experience compassion for others um, because you recognize the sacredness of life. So you will look into the eyes of your brothers and sisters and you will see something in their eyes that evokes in you a feeling of great love. So in the beginning of your meditation practice, you will feel compassion for all life. But as your meditation practice advances, your compassion changes. It's no longer compassion for the other. Rather, it's a deep recognition of yourself in the other. So the concept of the other dissolves, not intellectually. So this isn't like a concept. Rather, it's a felt experience that you viscerally feel in the core of your being when you look at not just someone, but something. You start to perceive that all matter is energy and all energy is of the same singular substance. You know, we talked a lot about Einstein and all that stuff um, and Heisenberg and, and that stuff. So in that quantum discussion, we talked about how all matter is just empty space. And if Einstein can show that matter is energy, then all energy is also empty space. And, you know, we talked a lot about how consciousness is empty space. And sorry to kind of rush through these concepts. We did cover them. Um, and I just noticed that I'm running out of time here. So I want to get to the clincher. And of course, you know, after our hour together, we'll sit around and we'll talk and we'll ask questions. And all that. But um, just to finish on time, we know now that all energy, you know, is just it's this one sheet of undifferentiated energy. And as Einstein said in his unified field theory paper, which he never finished, but he says that the whole world is one sheet of energy. Matter is just dense parts of that field. You know, so you start to notice this interconnectedness of matter and, and it's all just one. You feel it and it's ecstatic and it's like, ugh. you know, you're groaning with the orgasm of the universe being itself, you know, so it's great. But then you notice something else. You notice that nothing is happening. It's all already happened. 
So if this, there's an illusion that you're moving towards a future, that's only because of your limited vantage point of time consciousness. So you're aware of your past, you have a memory, you're aware of your future, you have a personality after all. But in meditation, when your personality is blitzed, when you're sitting there and you can no longer remember your name, or you can no longer feel your body, when you kind of slip out of time, you suddenly notice that everything is one moment, and the moment, here's the joke, has already happened. You know, in the beginning, there was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. That word in Sanskrit is vak. Vak is the vibratory expression of creation. The clincher is it's already been spoken. Bam, it's come into being. Everything has been said and done. You know, in quantum mechanics, there is a theory. It's called the B theory of time or the beta theory of time that presupposes all past and future events exist in one big now. And that's the only way you can explain backward causality with uh, photons. So in quantum mechanics, there's already a kind of understanding that there is only the now. But I'm not interested in quantum mechanics and scientific papers and concepts. Rather, I would invite you to meditate deeply such that you start to experience everything as this one eternal moment. And you might have already, some of you might have had, you know, um, uh, like retreats, yoga retreats, or maybe even a vacation or even a party where it all felt kind of timeless, you know, and you, for a moment, were watching yourself in the drama of it. You know, I've had shows where it's like so beautiful. Uh, I wasn't there playing the guitar. I was just sitting watching this drunken monkey Nish play the guitar. The night unfolds beautifully. Everything is effortless. And I'm sitting calmly watching it all happen with joy. So you've already had that taste. Now, it becomes deeper still when you realize this whole universe is just universing itself for no other than your own enjoyment. So if you were to close your eyes right now, the universe is effectively obliterated. If you were to open your eyes again, it resumes its form. And that's what you start to notice in meditation. The universe spontaneously arises out of you and dissolves back into you every time you go into your samadhi or your deep meditation. It takes a lot of practice, or maybe none at all, you know, given where we all are, karmically speaking. But after some technique, after some practice, and you know, some people have spontaneous awakenings without any practice at all. But after a while, you start to feel this sensation that the universe exists only in perception. And you might have noticed, you know, like when you learn about a chair, the chair looks physically different to you. If you're a carpenter, you know about the wood grain, the chair looks different to you. Or you're standing at a party and across the room, there's like a cute guy or girl, a person you want to go talk to them. And, you know, they're attractive. They look attractive. And you go over there and you start talking five sentences in. They're a total jerk and you're no longer attractive. They actually look different. You know, you start to realize that there is no objective reality out there outside of your own packaging, organizing and processing of it. So yoga is not solipsistic in its philosophy. It does not deny that there is a reality. In fact, the reality that yoga talks about, prakriti or nature, is one undifferentiated mass of pure being that appears to you in a differentiated form, depending on how you're looking at it. So if all reality rests on perception, 
then your universe is spontaneously created by you moment to moment to moment. And this a lot of new agers have caught on to, right? There's this whole kind of self-help boom where it's like, you create your reality, man. Positive thinking, you know, reprogram your mind to get the world that you want. Cool. That's about right. But this is a little deeper than that. This isn't just a pragmatic way of making your life better. This is an ontological, philosophical claim that your reality, your universe, exists only in your perception of it. Therefore, your purpose here is to awaken that understanding. So in closing, I will say this. And uh, I think Alan Watts might have ha- he, he was citing someone, I don't know, but someone once pointed, yeah, and science can prove a lot of this, but someone once pointed this out, um, and Alan Watts, I think, was quoting, and uh, I was quoting Christopher Wallace, the Oxford philosopher, and then someone told me I was quoting Alan Watts. I, like, I don't know who, where this is from, but it's not from me, so I'm just going to cite my source as someone, perhaps Alan Watts, perhaps Christopher Halis, Harish Wallace, perhaps someone else. So here's the joke. Imagine you are a being um, of infinite potential, infinite omniscience, and everywhere you looked, there you were. Just imagine that. Like you are one sheet of undifferentiated light. The Jewish call it Ein Sof Hour. I will tell you how old I am later, but right now it's not important, okay? Just stay with the stay with the thing. Stay with the thing. We'll get there, we'll get there. We'll do a QA. Stay with the thing. And the thing is, you're this undifferentiated mass of light. Chances are, if for aeons and aeons and aeons you were just that, you'd probably get bored. You know? You'd want some variety. Because all is one. How boring! Ew! It's all just light. Wow, talk about old man paradise, right? Like a lot of people have pointed out that heaven must be a really boring place. You're just sitting there in light, holy, ah, you know, hell's where all the interesting people are, right? That's a joke. Anyway, Elvis is there, huh? No, so here you are in, in, in heaven, like it's all lights, all bliss. It gets pretty boring after a while. So imagine if you started to create worlds. So you were like, okay, I need to have fun. So you created a world and you peopled it with stuff. If you went into that world, you wouldn't be enjoying the movie because you would be acutely aware that it's all special effects. You wouldn't be able to get into the movie, you know, because you're there sitting in your you know, movie theater chair going like, ah, I made this. You know, you, the magic of it is lost to you because you as the creator literally have designed everything. So everywhere you look, you only see yourself. It's kind of masturbatory, you know, um, and you get bored of that. So imagine one day something shows up. You don't know where it showed up, but it showed up. It was a box or, or a button. And it said, if you press this button, you will forget your identity. A world will come into being and anything can happen. You know, anything can happen. That would excite you. So in order for you to enjoy the movie of your life, you must forget that you are the author of your script, not just in your personal life, but in the entirety of the universe. So my claim to you now is if you ask yourself, who am I? And you ask yourself, who is God? The answer is the same. It's not egomaniacal niche saying, oh, I am God, so I don't have to do my chores. That's not it. Nish is not God. 
And if you spent some time, if you hung out with Nish, you would know how absolutely ridiculous this guy is. You know, total nut job. Um, if he was God, we're all in trouble. So Nish is not in any sense God. Maybe dog, not God. So neither, it's, it's, it's not Nick, it's not Carolyn, it's not, because it's none of these, they're not God. But in totality, as a set containing all things, that's who you are. That's who you are. So what's the purpose of practice? The purpose of practice is the same purpose you had when you came here. You came here, you forgot. Um, because anything is possible, there's also suffering. But remember, there's no evil. Since nothing is really happening anyway, it's all a dream. It's all an illusion. No one's really suffering, you know. But it feels real to you. Suffering is real as long as you're in this limited self. But when you go deep into meditating, God is not quite energy. We'll get there. Um, but once you go deep, energy is a tool of God to experience herself. Hmm? So once you go deep into this meditation, you start to realize, oh, all this suffering, all this stuff, all this going on, you zoom out and you realize it all happened in the movie theater of your imagination. So then what happens? Does, does it all dissolve? No, no, no. That's when the fun begins. You know, that, so enlightenment is not your goal. It's your beginning. You know, so we're only here to teach you how to enjoy the matrix, not to end it. Not to come out of it. Not to get other people out of it. You know, because if you go to a movie theater and you go and whisper in people's ear, hey, you know, it's not real, right? It's awful. Let them enjoy their movie. You know, if he's sitting there drinking beer, watching sports, beating his wife, that's awful. I hope he will find spirituality. But if you go there and try to get him to recognize the matrix before he's ready, watch out. Cast not the pearl before the swine, lest they turn and rend or crucify ye. You know, so in a way, don't ruin the movie for others, but we're all here now because we're learning how to actually enjoy it. And the way to enjoy it is to realize that we are not sitting here as separate selves. We are sitting here as one being able to enjoy itself, looking at itself from various points of view. So the true gift is delighting in Christina-ness, you know. The true gift is delighting in nishness, delighting in TikTokiness, delighting in, and, and here's the clincher. If you look at Kali, she's a fierce deity, delighting in the atrocities and genocides of the world. And this is crazy because you can be on two levels at once. You can feel grief, horrific grief. You could lose someone that you care about, but you will experience it as a thing of sharp beauty. We're not talking about comfort, pleasure. We're talking about bliss and meaning, which is a deeper emotion. So when I'm sitting here and we're sitting together, we are in a space in which we are one. But if it was just that, it would be boring. We are one in many. That's the trip. So you meditate. So when you're eating the apple, you're eating yourself and digging it. And so that's why we're practicing. And that's our, our talk for the day. Sorry, I went seven minutes, seven, oh, it's nice, seven minutes over. Um, as always, I'll stick around for as long as you want. We'll have more uh, questions and that kind of thing. So we'll open the floor. Any questions, thoughts? And Christina, if you could share your experience with the dog, that would be really great. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... It was more about the 
divine um what's the other word divine dispassion that that you were talking about and I so I was with my dog like um maybe I think like a couple weeks ago and I was going to take her out and like I looked out the window and I like I like it's like time and everything like it kind of just like halted and I was just there like staring out of the window just like like I wasn't like really thinking anything but then as soon as I thought like oh wow this is like a really peaceful moment or something that's when it like completely stopped and I was like oh like it's over okay whatever but and then I compared that to like because I used to get really bad like disassociation in high school and like I would just be in class and then I would be like but like it wasn't exactly like a good feeling like I like I got like anxiety from it and it's kind of like what you said about like the pyramid thing how like there was a similarity between like disassociation and like that like divine dispassion that I felt that in that moment there was something like super similar about it but it was like on completely different ends of like the scale so yeah I also wanted to bring up like something that you said about how like the chair like looks physically different and the world looks physically different and like I noticed myself lately like sometimes like right after doing yoga or like even like as you were talking about it I was like looking around and I was seeing it and like I noticed that like after like like changing like the way I thought and stuff I see it but then I'll compare it to like high that I've had before I'm like oh this feels like I'm this feels like I'm high like what and then then it'll it won't stop but it'll just be like me chasing that high instead of using a physical thing to get it so it was like oh like I'm just doing the same thing except I guess I don't have to spend money on it anymore (laughs) (laughs) I love that story Christina I love it so much because it's exactly it it's that experience of the water oh my god you know, you're drinking the water and it's sluicing down your throat and there's like a hint of sweetness inside the water and you're like, wow, well done. You know, and you're in the waterfall and you're like, wow, well done. <laughs> you're just enjoying your work. You know, I had this bad habit. Every time I'd make a record, I'd spend like the whole month, like, you know, when the Spotify tells you what um, your, who you listen to most every end of the year, they tell you that. <laughs> Mine was embarrassing. I spent 30-something hours listening to my own music. It was so sad. It was like, your top artists are <laughs> all the four bands. I was, there. I was like, ah! I was so, it was so masturbatory, you know? But I loved listening to myself. It was so weird. But it was that feeling of like, ah! I created something. Yeah, good job, Nish. Yeah. It's like, you know? It's that yeah, feeling of high. So I've got three questions so far, or four, I think. One is the relationship between breath and um, consciousness. The second one is on psychedelics. The third one is on kundalini awakening. And the fourth one is if God is energy. So I've got four questions so far, and we'll stick around and talk about that. Just wondering if you guys have any questions, you know, we'll add it to the pot and see if we can answer many at the same time. I think you mentioned something about some kind of um, astral 
projection experience that you had recently. I, I was, I'm just curious what that is. I like, I'm like, good, 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 yes. astral projection, also meditation technique. So I did get this question a couple of times. Um, can we meditate lying down and what techniques are there to meditate? So that's a good one. Um, and the astral stuff. Yes. Okay. So if that interests you, we'll stick around and talk about it a little bit. Feel free to drop out anytime. You know, it's just an open, it's like an open time for us to share. And, you know, cut me off at any time if you, like, have an experience and you want Lecture is over. No more lecture. Now we're just, now we're just hanging out and drinking yeah, tea. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we'll save the astral stuff for the end. And maybe we'll talk about astral, kundalini, and energy all at once. Um, first on, I know you've been asking a while, the breath and um, consciousness, the relationship between breath and consciousness. Um, and that's a really beautiful thing. So prana, and I'm sure you've all heard that word prana, um, pranayama, it often gets, oh, thank you. It often gets misinterpreted. So a lot of people think prana is breath. That's not entirely true. There are many different kinds of prana, samana prana, udana prana, apana prana, a lot of different types of prana. But that word prana just means life force or energy. So you can think of it this way. Breath is to prana what fire is to heat. If you change the heat, you might change the fire. If you change the breath, you might change the um, prana. So this is easy to validate or experience in your own life when you're stressed or anxious or you're not feeling good. Your breath is short, ragged, and shallow feels like it's here in the chest and it feels quite constricted and tight. So you know that that state of mind equals this breath. Then you also know that when you're feeling peaceful and happy and joyous, your breath is long, slow, deep, and in the belly. <laughs> Good question about asthma. I actually do have asthma. So yoga will really help with that. <laughs> And yeah, Wim Hof is, is a good good breath breath technique person. Wim Hof actually studied with a lot of uh, Tibetan um, sages. So it's a Tibetan technique. It's called Tumo. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about Tumo some other day. The Tibetan Buddhism is very cool. Very cool. That's where all the astral stuff comes up from, by the way, Nick. A lot of cool stuff there. Um, but yeah, that being said, the breath, since it is a symptom of your state. Notice today when we were meditating, we didn't do any pranayama. You know, I wasn't like, breathe this way. We just sat and we listened and we just noticed the breath. And you might have noticed today as you were meditating, your breath naturally changed. You know, so you didn't need to do anything. Your breath just became deeper, quieter, more in the belly, longer and smoother. So you did pranayama. You didn't use your breath. You manage your energies differently by listening, by tasting, and by smelling. You tuned into this moment, and so you controlled your energy, creating a shift in your state. So pranayama, yama means restraint or control. Prana means life force or energy. Every time you watch TV, you, your energy goes into the TV. You know, every time you get involved in a conversation with someone, energy goes into that conversation. So generally speaking, you give up a lot of your energy by going out into the world, 
by thinking about the future or by thinking about the past. So these are ways in which you're spending energy. Every time you orgasm, huge explosion of energy, right? That's why the French call it le petit mort, the little death, you know? Um, and that's why a lot of spiritual traditions recommend celibacy, not because sex is bad or it's feelings. It's not that. It's not that. It's just to manage your energies better, you know? And that being said, there are many tantric ways in which you can retain energy even. So this conversation about energy is very deep and very rich. But the basic point here is that your prana or your life force um, is often not in control of, you're not really in control of it. Um, your moods tend to switch and change based on what's happening. Um, there are ways that people can also take your prana. Oh, psychedelics, yes, yes. Remind me, we talk about psychedelics. People will take your prana through media, etc. Politics, anytime someone gets you to react or engages you in a discussion about politics, huge energy going out, all that. So pranayama is your ability to control and manage your energy. Now, it just so happens the breath is one of your best tools to do it. Just because breath is so intimately related to your life or your life force. So think about it in the Bible, um, you know, the clay and even the Quran, the clay Adam, he was brought to life. You know, Adam was brought to life when God breathed into him. So the breath of God awakened this clay man, Adam. So breath and life are so entwined. To live is to breathe. So here's the, the theory. By controlling your breath, you control your life. It's that simple. In the Attarva Veda, it says yoga is pranayama. One of the earliest definitions of yoga. Yoga is pranayama. You know, the earliest definition from the Rig Veda is yoga is union. The next one is yoga is pranayama. That's from the Attarva Veda, the fourth of the four Vedas. Um, and the Rig Veda is one of the older ones. So... Pranayama, that's yoga, meaning your control of energy is yoga. So you can investigate if you're stressed. Um, yes, if you're stressed and you change your breath, you stop becoming so stressed. If you feel like you're going to react, like someone pissed you off and you're going to say something hurtful, take three deep breaths and then see. Suddenly you don't want to say that hurtful thing anymore. You know, so just by steadying, centering, breathing, it changes your whole state. So the yogis discovered that and they said, if there is a link between breath and consciousness, let's develop this technique of breathing. So that's really the link between breath and consciousness. I want to go a little further, though, and point you to the Yoga Sutra. In the Yoga Sutra, yes, the Vedas were way before Patanjali. Patanjali is writing literally thousands of years after the Vedas. The Vedas show up, and it's oral tradition, so it's hard to say when exactly the Vedas show up. But a lot of modern Indic scholars are saying around 7,000 BCE. Because certain texts, like the Rig Veda, are referencing older texts which is not text, sorry, but liturgy or, or oral um, theory, it, it, oral, I don't know what to call it. Like, I know you call it text the text, but an oral tradition, what do you call, I guess a hymn, the hymns of the Rig Veda or the liturgy was referencing an earlier liturgy. So, you know, in the modern studies, no one can tell you when the Vedas showed up. Some of the more conservative estimates are about 3,800 BCE, but modern scholarship says probably 7,000 BCE with the Upanishads, 
meaning the commentary on the Veda, showing up around 3,800 with the Chandogya Upanishad. One of the first mentions of yoga is in that Upanishad. So that's a scholarly note. But in, in this Veda, Pranayama, um, in Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says yoga is the retention of breath. Kumbhaka. So those of you who have studied pranayama know that there are three parts to the breath, yes? There is purnaka, inhale, rechaka, exhale, and kumbhaka, retention. So if MTV were to show up at your like spiritual practice and you took them MTV cribs and you're like, hey, MTV cribs, welcome to my crib, you would to go to the kumbhaka and you would say, this is where the magic happens, you know? That's really, the kumbhaka is like, oh, that. So in yoga, we're actually trying, yeah, it's still called a text, right? Non-written material is still a text. Okay, good, good. Glad to have cleared that up. So yes, we can say the text of the Vedas are much older than Patanjali. So anyway, um, the kumbhaka becomes longer and longer. So Christina, I, I just presume, and I venture an assumption, that when you were having this experience, it was kind of like breathtaking. Right. I really couldn't say because I just wasn't paying attention to anything like like I could it, it wasn't fast though. That's the one thing I know. Like it was more of a like just like staring into space and then you forget your breathing and then like it's kind of like what you talked about, like when it's like the breath is like barely there, you don't notice it. So, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. There's that feeling of like the breath is barely there. You don't notice yeah. it. And, you know, even in our popular um, culture, we say breathtaking. You know, my breath caught. Like when you're falling in love. Oh, what a spiritual experience, right? Falling in love. That moment, breathless. You see the love of your life. You know, so there's like a like a kind of even in modern culture a sentiment that when your breath stops, that's something special. You know, so yoga says, uh, or in Patanjali Yoga Sutra it says, yoga happens because yoga is not a practice. By the way, yoga is a state. Only recently have we started referring to yoga as a set of practices. Back in the day, the word for that is sadhana, spiritual path or practice. Yoga is what you do sadhana for. Yoga is an experience, union. You know, um, but that being said, when you have the experience of yoga, Patanjali says it happens in that pause in between inhale and exhale. So if you think about it, speech is not the words, it's the space between the words. Music is not the notes, it's the rhythm or rhythm, it's the space between beats and notes. You know, the night sky is beautiful, not because of the stars, but because of the space between the stars that conveys a feeling of expansion. So really, there's that spaciousness or that gap where light can break through. So the breath is energy, but space is the container of energy. So this will answer the question, is God energy? No, God is not energy. But yes, God is energy because only God is, right? So energy emanates from God in the same way heat emanates from the fire, but you wouldn't have heat without the fire. Similarly, you wouldn't have energy without you, meaning God, you being God. So that being said, God isn't quite energy because to say that reduces God to just matter. Matter is just energy. But God is the space 
in which that energy sits. And that space you experience in the pause between breaths, in the pause between notes, in the pause between words. Hmm? Now, there are moments in your life, it, I call it the quiet moment at the party. You know, and I just say this because there were a lot of like post show parties, and this is where my deepest spiritual realizations would happen. You know, as you're sitting there watching the hustle and bustle of pleasure, like the, the marketplace of pleasure, there are lulls in your pleasure seeking in which you ask, Is there more to it than just this? You know, your lulls are the spiritual moments. When you're doing yoga, like physical hatha asana, and you're moving between a plank pose to a down dog, sometimes you arrive at the down dog, your heels touch the floor, your thighs press back into the thigh bones, fingers spreading, you're in the perfect down dog, pause. Yoga happens. You're like, oh, now it's, I'm in, you know, I'm in the pose, you know. So that's where people get really excited. It's that pause, you know. That's the relationship between breath and consciousness. Now, I want to go one step further. This is crazier. Um, I want to suggest to you that the first project of yoga um, was to figure out in a world of change, was there something that didn't change? Or rather, in a world of impermanence, was there something that was permanent? So the first seers or rishis, you know, started to, thank you, started to um, ask these questions. And they would, you know, study the natural world. So yogic science is very um, rich. You know, they, they call it Vasheshika, which is yogic physics. It's very rich. They had already figured out in the early Shastras or the early Vedas around 4000 BCE. Even in the Rig Veda, you can see they're saying there's no matter. All matter is Maya, all energy. So they already did that Einstein stuff, right? But in studying the natural world, they were trying to figure out the answers to the questions. They couldn't, though. So they asked another question. What happens if you die? You know, what happens after death? Now, the problem is there aren't a lot of people who can report on this matter. You know, we have a lack of data because <laughs> people don't come back and tell us often. You know, and if they do, they're trying to get a spot at a like an interview with John Casey or something on, on TV. So it's, it's hard to find authentic sources as to what happens after death. So what did the early yogis do? Remember, they were scientists. So the scientific method was already something they were practicing, which is isolate the variables, run an experiment, see what happens, adjust the, the method. So here's, yes, funeral rites. So here's what they did. They said, let's study death. What is death? Three things. One, the mind stops. Dead people don't think. Yes, we know that. Two, the body is completely still. Um, dead people don't move. Okay, we know that. Three, dead people don't breathe. There's no breath. Does this sound familiar? Do you practice every day a technique whereby you still your body, quiet your mind, and stop your breath? Meditation, right? Meditation, I want to offer this to you, is nothing more than a scientific experiment to simulate death and figure out what it's all about. If you want to study life, go study death. How to study death? Die. But how to die and stay alive? Meditate. You know? So we are obsessed with death, us yogis, right? We're obsessed with death. Um, ah, you know, we're going to talk about DMT and being legally dead. There's some interesting things about like, because there are ways to die where you don't really die, by the way. You know, you can die and your brain could still be going on, you know, and they bring you back to life. Did you have a near-death experience? Pah! Try meditating. You know, you'll have that state. 
Uh, a lot of people that talk about near-death experiences, ah, uh, beginner stuff, you know? Sit, sit more. That stuff like, oh, so you got into a car crash, you nearly died, now you think you're gone because you saw beyond, you know? But no, no, if you really meditate, if you can really stop your breath for long periods of time, be actually still and be actually quiet, then you will feel death. And death, as the Christian mystics have always said, die to be born again. You know, die to experience eternal life. So when these yogis, quote unquote, died, they found more life than there is even in this world. It was like waking up from a dream. So death wasn't the end. It was a beginning. Death was the waking up out of the dream of Maya. Then when they came out of their meditation, they were like, guys, this is a dream. You know, and I would ask you, how do you know that last night you dreamt and now you're awake? You know, you know, because... Something about this feels realer. I don't know. You know, it just feels a little bit more grounded and tangible. So you don't need somebody to explain. And I will we'll talk about technique in a little bit. You don't need somebody to explain to you what's real or what's not. You certainly don't need some guy on Zoom telling you that, you know. God, we don't need more guys on Zoom talking, right? Like, ugh, this is embarrassing. No, but um, the point is you don't need to be told what's real or what's fake, you know there's something in you that grants ontological primacy or primacy to things. So if you meditated and touched something that was more real than this, this would feel to you like a dream. The same way your dream last night felt to you one order of reality less real than this one. Hmm? So all that is to say, if you died, and a lot of you have in corpse pose, you are still, your breath stopped, your mind stopped, bliss, right? If you died, you would know these things. One, that you are God. Two, that this world is here for you to play in. Three, that none of it is real, so don't take it so seriously. Um, and it's not solipsist, actually. Um, and we did talk a couple of classes back as to why yoga wasn't solipsistic. But yeah, so that being said, breath is huge because breath techniques will show you how to die and showing you how to die will show you how to live. So why is it yogis cover themselves in ash? You know, ash is an important symbol. It's actually ash from the funeral pyre, you know, or monks used to lie down, um, not Indian monks, but Christian monks used to lie down in a casket and simulate death and they would go into trance states. The god of yoga or the king of yoga is Shiva. Shiva is a mortuary figure. He's the god of destruction, the god of the grave. And if you've seen him, he's blue, right? He's blue, he's dead. His hair is all matted and long and unkempt. And he sits in the icy Himalayas at the top of the mountain, far away from the world. And what does he do? He sits and he's just tripping. He's blissed out, eyes half closed, just in a state of bliss, completely inert. So that's kind of why we, yes, the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, one of the great mystical texts of the West says, lie in the tomb to know me. That's beautiful. So I think we answered a little bit about God is not energy. And we answered about breath and consciousness and how breath, consciousness and energy are all interrelated and what you have to do with all of that. So that's good. That's good. Um, Kundalini then is this idea. Kundalini is kind of like your wake-up button. So you fell into, you know, the, the Jim um, Morrison lyric, into this house we're thrown like a dog without a bone. Not quite true. 
into this house were thrown, but you did get a bone. You just misplaced it, you know? So you as God descended into this world, forgot that you were God. You gave yourself a lifeline, you know, to get back out. And that lifeline is your kundalini energy. This is a psychosomatic spiritual force that lies dormant in most people. And the myth is that kundalini, she's a goddess, you know, um, and she's a metaphor. Remember, all religion is metaphor. So kundalini is a goddess and she's a metaphor for this energy. The legend is that she coiled three and a half times around the tailbone. You know, in the Quran, I think in verse 78 of the Juz Amma, it says that the world gets destroyed. What's left is the tailbone. It's the only indestructible part of the human body. It's quite funny. I like those little. Anyway, so this tailbone has this spiritual force coiled there. For most people, it's totally dormant. Like most people are on drink beer, watch sports mode, right? Not to bash that, but a lot of people are just like on that mode or like be get internship, you know, get internship make money, American dream, now what? Kind of just, uh, you know. But then you have awakenings. It can happen many ways. Someone comes, taps on your forehead three times, you know. In my case, it was in the Sai Baba ashram, sitting, doing bhajan. Um, I wrote Sai Baba. He's, you know, a saint in India. And I was in his ashram. as a young boy, you know. And uh, I wrote Sai Baba a letter, you know. Um, I was, there was a mailbox. You could put questions in the mailbox, and he would come out and give talks and answer them. And it just so happened that during my visit at Sai Baba's ashram, he this was in his later years of life, he didn't come out and give talks as often as he used to. So the only way to really communicate with him was to write these letters. So I wrote a letter to him. It was long. It was like all these questions, you know, who am I? Who is God? What are you? How'd you get your powers? What do you use your powers for? You know, just like, like a kid would do, right? This whole long thing. And I went and I was going to put the thing in the mailbox, you know, and then I paused and I was like, I don't know. I feel weird about this. Like, I don't really want to like, you know, bully this man, sweet old man with all these questions. Um, and I don't feel worthy. Like, I don't feel worthy of being replied to or being answered to, you know, thousands of people in the ashram. So I like crumpled it, threw the letter away or kept it or something, you know. The next day, I'm in the bhajan hall and we're all singing songs, you know. Sai Baba isn't there. But the thing about these beings is that they are there, you know. Even if they don't come out, they are still working with you on many different planes. So now we're coming to the astral question a little bit, you know. If you're hanging out with somebody, it's not their words, you know, today, you should forget everything I've told you. It's not important. These words, these concepts, not important. What's actually happening is an energetic exchange. We are working with each other on levels that are subliminal, subaudible, and outside the mind. So you might notice like, oh, some of you are like excited and energetic. You know, you feel inspired. There's energy. A transfer is happening and both ways, you know, there's a resonant field. So you're feeling like kind of locked into this moment. And this moment feels like an eternity, just going on and on and on. And when we end our call, you know, you'll sit, you'll be in bliss for a while. It'll happen. I hope, I hope. But that's not because of the words or what's being discussed. It's something is happening energetically. Hmm? So when you sit with someone and dogs, cats, birds know this, right? If you go and you pet the dog and you're like, hi, good boy. But inside you're like anxious and stressed, the dog will bark at you. You know, because the dog is not listening to your words or looking at your smile. The dog is pure energy, pure vibe. In other words, the dog is conscious on a different plane. 
a different dimension of reality than the one you're on. So a lot of you practice Hatha Yoga. Before you practiced your poses, you didn't feel your hamstring. You know, like you, you, you were in a body, but your body didn't feel the way it did. Suddenly you're like, oh, I have hamstrings. You like felt them, you know. Now your life has broadened. There's an added dimension to your life now. And that is, you know, your hamstrings. <laughs> in some ways, you are now on two planes at once. You are in the mental and physical plane, where before you might have just been in the mental plane. Look, most people spend their whole lives in one plane, the mental plane. And, you know, you see this with anorexia a lot of times, like the, the image in the mirror is not real, you know, body dysmorphia. You're not seeing what's physically there. You're seeing what's mentally there in your projection of the world. And we, you know, people go through their whole lives doing this. Um, we'll talk about how to start, you know, people go their whole lives, man. And then you start practicing yoga and then something happens. You get in touch with your body and you're actually hungry. You're not eating because you have to. And you're not eating too much. You're not eating too little. Eating, diet, doesn't become this mental thing where some white guy in a lab coat on Instagram is teaching you how to do it, right? Like we live in a world of diet fads like, oh, you're a yogi, you must eat this. Like, bullshit. Like you eat what your body needs for you to eat at the time at your practice. You know, maybe that's meat. The Dalai Lama eats meat, you know, whatever. It's not important. The point is you're able to listen to your body. So suddenly your life is richer. You know, you know when to sleep. You, a lot of you are waking up at 3.40 spontaneously. Yes, some of you started practicing and you're just waking up. Um, a lot of you night people have become morning people. You know, you're, you do your sun salutations. You're starting to tune in. Um, so you're, you, you, you've got a new plane now. The physical plane. It's like a city. It's like a power. You know, you have energy. You know your body. You know when to sleep. You know when to eat. You know when to wake up, etc. You know when to rest. A lot of people don't have that skill. So you got that. Good. Now, imagine you practice more. Suddenly, you become aware of different dimensions. You know? And it's not worth talking about before it becomes an experience. Since how do you explain the feeling of hamstrings to a person who doesn't know that he has them? How can you explain the taste of strawberry, you know, except by analogy, you know? So the best I can do for you now is give an analogy, you know? So this whole world is not matter. It's just energy and energy is just vibration. So think of each plane as a certain key. Oh, I don't want to say key because as a musician, that bothers me to think that there are many keys at once. Since to listen to the sound of the world, it's not cacophonous. It's totally harmonic. It's like a euphony. You know, it's beautiful. Oh, but not even in like, uh, never mind. So not to say there are different keys. Let's say there are different notes in a mode, right? So each plane is like a note. You tune up to certain notes, you know? You tune down to other notes. So you can think of it as a kind of like different frequencies, different pitches, different notes, different rhythms. By working with rhythm, so yoga, you know, you can do your kriyas, you know, you do your kriyas and you change rhythms in your body. So your neurochemistry will change. Your brain waves will physiologically change from beta waves, which um, I have it here. I have all the frequencies of the beta waves here. I don't know if you're interested, but I'm going to presume that you are because I'm like kind of obsessed about this stuff. But the beta waves are 12 to 30 hertz, right? So that's the frequency of beta waves. This is your waking state of consciousness. This is your everyday waking state. You do a little yoga 
and it changes. Then you go into an alpha state, which is an 8 to 12 hertz. So in the beginning of today's class, you might have experienced an alpha state when we were meditating. You know, you felt it. You felt a shift. So the alpha state. You go deeper and you go into a theta state. That's 4 to 8 hertz. This is um, like a deep meditative state. And you go even deeper and you're in a delta phase, which is 0 0.1, sorry, 0 0.0124 to 4 hertz. So notice something. As you go deeper into these states, the frequency is decreasing, which means the wavelength is increasing, right? So the rhythm becomes more smooth. When you're waking, it's like, you know, short wavelengths, high frequency, and your life feels kind of erratic. Can I just say that all your feelings are nothing but energy? All you are is energy. So all your moods, everything is just energy. So if you think of it from a purely physical, material, physics point of view, your bad moods or stress is just... And then you get deeper. And then it's like, ah. And you get even deeper. And then it's like, and even deeper, you know. And finally flatlining that's when it's beautiful when you're flatlining you can step out and see all the waves stacked on each other so each of these waves is a sound is an amplitude it's a note i don't know how to describe it any better than that um, but think of this like kind of interweaving of sounds you tune up and you're able to experience different sounds that's all astral projection really is you start to meditate and then you tune to something and suddenly you're having experiences that you know are different from dreams because they feel qualitatively different to you. You meet beings. So um, on the astral plane, you'll meet a lot of teachers. And I want, I want you to know this. With, right now, you are operating on all those planes even though you aren't aware of it. The only difference is your own degree of participation. So when you meditate, you just learn to notice what's going on, you know? And like you were saying, Christina, you looked around the room and stuff looked different, you know? Maybe earlier when we were meditating, you, I told you to listen, you heard sounds that you might previously have not heard, you know? So right now, the kitchen tap is dripping. There's like stuff sounds going on, but I'm not hearing it because we're hanging out, right? But if we stopped hanging out, and I focused, the sounds would come. It's not that they aren't there for me. They are. It's just I'm not, you know, my consciousness is not there. So right now, you are dreaming. You are right now hanging out on the astral plane with a teacher, you know. Um, right now, you're in a body. Right now, you're thinking. So you are operating on so many levels of what's. The question is, can you be aware of them all, you know. So once you start to become aware of it, it gets cool because you, you realize that right now, the work we're doing is purely astral. It's purely energetic. What you are seeing in Nish is a passing phenomena. Think of it this way. There is a pond and like something is walking around the pond. Yes. What you see in the pond, that reflection, that's us. You know, there's like Nick there and, and Caroline, we're all like in the pond reflection. But what we are passing phenomena, what's actually happening on a higher plane is like Nickness and Christina-ness and Nishness, like, you know, are all like moving about. And we are with teachers right now. So everything I'm saying to you does not come from me at all. These are not my words and these are not my ideas, you know? 
Listen to the voice and you'll know it's not my voice because you are going to hear it in other places. That's going to blow your mind. You're going to be listening to things like Alan Watts and Ram Das and Maharaji and Krishna Das and, and you will hear the same voice. You know, the, the words might be different or the same, but energetically, only one person is speaking to you right now. You know, so yeah, that's what I mean by planes. And you can have, you know, the other day I went in there. Um, so once, once you start to become aware of these parts of your body, you can get a little like, yes. Oh, um, okay. Three questions. The technique, my age, I said I would do that. And ashram at Sai Baba. Okay. But um, you can start to become egotistical about this stuff. So once you learn how to go to the astral, it's like a video game. It's like tripping, right? You become excited about it and then you want to do it. I personally have done a lot of work on the astral because I find it, I, you know, I, I find a lot of teachers there and you got to be careful who you meet there, you know, cause all sorts of energy. But if you go in there with a pure heart, you know, you ask for a teacher and, and there's this concept of a guru and I don't want to get into it right now, but we all have one. Likely all of our gurus is the same guru since we're all here now, you know, and the guru, you don't have to meet that person in fact, I think our guru, I'm just going to presuppose this. I don't know this for sure. It's a theory I'm working on. Like, why us, right? Why is Caroline here? And why is Christina here? Like, why us? But it's not a coincidence. Like, your energies and mine, like, we all came together for a specific reason. I'm supposed to learn from you. You know, you, you are the teachers brought to me now. Like, why? Who brought you if not my guru? You know? And once you start to play with this idea, you realize that everything that happens is your guru having fun with you, teaching you stuff, you know? If you're freaking out about money, guru, like, takes it from you, just to freak you out. Um, or gives you lots of it, just to exaggerate your problems. And you can think of your whole life as this discourse that you're having with this teacher, you know? And, and Sai Baba, in that sense, when I wanted to put the note in and I decided not to, my ass, he needed to read the note. You know, he knew what I was, of course he knew. Every letter going in, of course he knew. Um, and so he said, all right, I'll answer your question. And the next day I'm sitting in the bhajan hall and I felt, and I couldn't perceive as a child not able to really understand what I was feeling. And you as children talk to fairies. You know, you all had imaginary friends. You were straight up astral tripping. And let me just say, nothing you learn in yoga is new to you. You were masters as children. You could do headstands as children. Oh my God, you didn't even need to practice. You could just do it. You were really good yogis back then, you know? <laughs> and I, you know, the other day, I, I almost thought like, it's funny. Every time I have like a pregnancy scare, I'm always like, okay, my guru is coming to me now, like as a child. Because I have this weird intuition that my child will be that guru. Um, who I know and I've met in dreams, but never in person. And I know that if I go to India and look for him now, that'd be missing the point. I'd never find him. Because he'd play with me, right? He'd run away from me. Because he knows that I'm looking for something outside of myself, etc. Anyway, now we're rambling. But at the ashram, I felt a shift in the air. Sai Baba had come and worked with my energy. And what he did was set me on a course. So that night, I remember I went and bought a Bhagavad Gita. I was very young and I bought the Bhagavad Gita and I came home and just read it for hours. I didn't understand anything, but I felt this urge to read it. You know, similarly, you're feeling this urge now to like do spirituality, to hang out and talk about spirituality. 
that's, that's probably coming from the guru on a different plane, you know? So Nick, you know, as you start to meditate more, you'll be able to hang out there. Um, you'll meet beings. They'll instruct you. They're very phantasmagorical. There are, you know, all sorts of costumes and images. And you think you're going to meet a certain kind. You, I keep meeting like these Asian gurus where I'm, I, I expect to find an Indian one. But there's always like someone from China. It's like weird, you know, and you go into all that stuff and it's cool. Um, or you're on the path of Zen. You're a Vipassana meditator and then you don't have to deal with astral at all. You know, sometimes it's just not part of your practice. And you know what I would say? Honestly, just as well. Just as well. Because it's one less thing to distract you, one less thing to get attached to. You know, like, because if you go to the astral, at first you'll run from stuff or you will chase stuff. You know, it's very disconcerting and scary. I remember one time I was having, if you don't mind a story, I was having a dinner with this family that I met in the astral, like a group of souls. We're having a dinner, you know. It's very nice, very sweet. And they told me, okay, now we're going to go upstairs and we're going to perform a ritual. You stay here. Okay, just stay here. There's all this stuff for you to do. You know, just stay here. And they went upstairs. Did I stay there? Of course not. You know, I'm curious. And you get kind of addicted to checking stuff out, which is really kind of like dangerous sometimes. Not because there are malicious beings or anything, but sometimes you just get more energy than your system is ready to handle at that time. You know? So then I went upstairs where they were having the ceremony. And I remember I peeked around this thing and I saw, and it was like the scariest thing I'd seen in my whole life. You know, like no horror movie. And I'll never be able to accurately depict it. But it was like a group of people. Yeah, I'll tell you who Sai Baba is and I'll tell you how to find gurus maybe. Um, but you know, there's like a, like a, an audience, like bleachers. And there are all these souls and they're gathered to watch. And I turned to see what they're watching. And I've never been so horrified. It was like a being sitting in a throne, like a green being. I, no face, just green and sitting. Kind of like, um, you know, in the Justice League, there's the Martian. that Kind of looked like that, very like bulky. And it was there and the being turned to see me. And I felt the force of something so old and so ancient as to be abject horror for me you know it was terrifying and i had that feeling like in mark where jesus says who is that who has not um not uh, a wedding raiment bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness and even jesus says that in the bible like he doesn't want to have someone at the wedding who's not ready you know so that being looked at me with disgust and like when a being that powerful like gives you that like disgust like the 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 self-esteem hit that your ego takes. Oh, it took me forever to recover from that one. It manifested in horrific ways. Two days ago, I went in there, um, didn't call my guides. And if you start to practice, you know, your astral, you know, moving around in the astral, always, you know, invoke your guides, you know, have the beings that you care for you, you know, but by then you'll know who they are, you know, have them with you, go together and always go with a purpose or an intention. As my teacher Carolina tells me, go with a purpose. Go because you have a question that needs to be answered. Don't just hang out, you know, because if you just hang out, people, they get excited. You know, these beings, they get very excited that you're there because they're disembodied and they're not able to affect the world. The world, as Zoroastrians say, is a very important chessboard. 
you know? And if they can influence people to move on the chessboard, they want to. And a lot of people have different motives, you know? Different parts to play in the game. So, some beings get excited that you're there and they want to hang out with you and they want you to do stuff for them in the physical plane, you know? And that gets kind of creepy and it's mostly benign, you know? It's mostly kind of chill. But sometimes they get hungry and they want to feed on your prana, you know? Um, so, if you just go in there, like the other day, I just, I was so tired. And I just fell asleep and I like accidentally dreamed my way and then I was there and then I should have, you know, but I decided to stay and, you know, you get excited. Then I went and there was this like crone, this like hag, this old lady, you know, who came up to me and started to talk to me. Two nights ago, I was learning from a teacher. So I was in this receptive mood for teachings. So I listened. I was like, oh, and she's like whispering. And it's this um, wordless whisper. It's like, just like, like kind of talking in tongues, you know? And I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening. And I get this full horror that my partner is going to leave me. I'm going to be all alone. You know, like, like she's like telling me this like premonition, like, oh, and that's going to scare you. And then I was projected into an evening where I was alone in my house and the shadows were tall and scary. And she spooked me, right? And I got spooked. And the moment I got spooked, she started eating. You know, she took a bite right out of my belly, which was so scary. So scary. And then I felt like this, this disempowerment. You know, because once my defenses were lowered, I got scared. Ow! She came and took a bite. You know, I spent, I didn't have any sleep that night. I spent the rest of the night chasing her down, you know, and, and, and violently slapping, trying to get that energy back. It was also horrible. But anyway, so. I actually had an experience, like, mm-hmm. really, it was, I remember, like, I got kind of, like, obsessed with, like, the idea of astral projection. So then, my meditation stopped being meditations and they started being like, okay, let's astral project tonight. And I was doing that consistently and not doing any, like, I guess like real work. And then one night I was sleeping and I was just thinking about like astral projection. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to do it. And then like, I told myself like, it's all in your head. And then I started to feel myself like almost like you're falling, but like upwards, that's like what it felt like. And then, like, I realized and I got scared because in my head I was like, wait, I'm not ready for this. And then I dropped back. But then when I opened my eyes, there was, like, a portal and then a being here asking me what I wanted. And I was like, I told him something and I can't remember. But then when he said that, he was like, you can't go back now. I got scared when he said that. And that's when I felt like something coming out of like, like my spine was being ripped out. And I was like, wait, like what's going on right now? Like, and then I forced myself to wake up and then a lot of other stuff happened, but it was really like, like the next day I remember being like, what the, like, what was that? Like, I'm not ready for that if that's what astral projection was. And then like, I realized like I wasn't doing any type of like actual, like, it was no intention, no preparation, no, like, real, like, it was just for fun. And, like, it, was, it wasn't it was exactly the right intention, I feel like. Right. And yeah. your inner self protected you, you know? Yeah. Keeping you. Yeah. For sure. Um, that's really beautiful, Christina. Yeah. I, I think something that, like, because I've only been practicing meditation for a few months now, like four or five months. I think something that draws like the reason that astral projections, I know that you shouldn't, it shouldn't be something that you're like aiming for. It shouldn't be like the goal of meditation. But I think it's really drawing for me because it 
like the, the skeptic in me wants some kind of like, that would be like, if I saw that, I would be like, I'm doing the right thing. This is, this is true. This is correct. You know? Good. Good. There is value to that, Nick. In fact, in the Yoga Sutra, it says your practice, um, even if these aren't the goals, it's good to have them to keep you on the path. So a few things in the Yoga Sutra, it says, if you, if you want to test how far you've come in meditation, bring your awareness to the tip of the nose and you should be able to perceive a sweet smell. Bring your attention to the tip of the tongue and you should be able to taste a, a fine flavor. But truly, when you start to taste and smell these spontaneous things, and you actually experience them, then you know it's legit. So, yeah, that's true, Nick. In yoga, we, we do value, like handstands, headstands, you know, in Hatha yoga. Really, it's not going to enlighten you, but it's valuable because it's exciting. You know, it keeps you on the path, and it, 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 it's important. So, in that way, you're right. There is value to working on the astral, to energy. And um, it does feel different from a dream. feels different. So yeah, definitely pursue it and keep meditating. Um, the thing is, it will happen. It, it, it's something that everybody, you know, sooner or later as they're meditating. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. There are some traditions like Vipassana and Zen that specifically are designed to shield you from being distracted. But I do want to say, though, I mean, there's a lot of comments here about like, how do you astral project? What techniques do you use? How do you protect yourself in the astral? Who should you talk to? How do you find teachers? This is fascinating, right? It's really fascinating to talk about the... But let us just say our fascination with the astral is the same as our fascination with psychedelics. And it's just as disappointing, if I can say that. It's just as um, unfulfilling or transient. You know, you have the trip of your life. Like you go and have some mushrooms or some LSD and you have the trip of your life. Like in the middle of your living room, you're shouting, I see God, my ego is dead. I know how it all is. Tomorrow, same person you were the day before, you know, like think about your fondest trips. You barely think about them. Maybe you have a journal entry somewhere, you know, but they don't really like actually affect our lives, you know? Um, So a trip, can feel like a movie. It's just something we did once and enjoyed for six hours and then we're like, whatever. Bollywood movies are six hours. That's why this is a good... <laughs> you know, it's just like, and, and it's like that. It's like that. So a lot of us need to be very honest with ourselves. I know I need to be in the sense that is my work on the astral genuine spiritual work or is it just another veiled attempt at escapism that seems to be so endemic in the spiritual community? We want magical stuff. Like we want that Harry Potter, like kind of, you know, um, this, this practice that we do is couched in so much symbology and drama and pomp, you know, and it's those that speak the loudest that have the least to say, right? It's those that want to talk about the astral. They're like, oh, you know what I did last night? And I'm guilty of that. I just did that, you know, but like, oh, you, you, you want to feel something, you know, like, like, and they'll send some Reiki over. You know, it's like it's people who do that, that probably have the least to offer. Because honestly, the only yogic superpower that you should be interested in is the peace, joy, compassion and wisdom that comes from your practice. You know, the superpower is not reacting when an old pattern comes um, triggering a trauma. You know, that's the magic. That's the beauty. Like the strawberry in the mouth, like when you really taste the strawberry. 
you know, biting it, not thinking, how does this compare to other strawberries? Or what will I do after this strawberry? Or even the thought, ah, what a good strawberry. All these thoughts, once you get rid of them and you taste the strawberry, that is an experience more fulfilling than any psychedelic astral projecty experience, you know? So, you know that, like, you know, true gurus often when they don't make a big deal or they don't use your cities but are just content. You know, the gurus of India, a lot of times, if you went to them, they wouldn't give you instruction. They would just like chat, um, gossip. So who's getting married? Who was invited in the, oh, the neighboring village person didn't get invited. Oh, you know, they drink their chai. Sometimes they smoke a little charas out of a chalum, you know, little pipe, they smoke a little bit, talk. Um, no instruction, no spirituality. Famously, Ram Das asked Maharaji, his guru, how do I um, become enlightened? Maharaji said, feed people. And he went, okay, surely he doesn't know who I am. I am Richard Alpert, famous Harvard psychologist. I'm not asking for pedestrian spirituality. I will rephrase my question. How do I awaken Kundalini? You know, he asked. Again, Maharaji says, feed people. <laughs> simple things like that, simple things. And, you know, someone is asking, how do I find my gurus and who is Sai Baba? Sai Baba is an Indian saint. He has a big afro. In India, you know, there are a lot of saints. And I think in America too, but it's just that the culture doesn't um, really make a big deal of the saints. You know, but in India, they're celebrated. And, you know, Nick, like if you are looking to validate your practice, visiting a saint is a good thing to do. But the irony is, if Jesus were to walk into Rolf's, like we'd miss him. You know, he'd be shopping and you'd walk right by and you'd like miss Jesus. You'd be like, oh, cool clothes, groovy guy, nice energy, had some cool thoughts. You know, if he came in and taught you a lesson, you'd be like, that was interesting. Never would have thought of him again. But he's Jesus Christ. So on some level, you need to attune your senses so you know the guru when you see one. Chances are you've already met your guru and you've walked right past the guru, you know. Um, and here I'm getting questions like, how do we open all our chakras? You know, how do we meet our gurus? That's when you know we've gotten into our, like, this is not going to be a productive discussion part of spirituality. This is intellectual curiosity. Like, be careful. The intellect is like your senses. It likes to be gratified. It wants new tidbits of information to chew on, you know? No, no, no. We must keep our discussion entirely pragmatic, practical, and more than anything, living. You know, we need to, we need to start now. Like, after our, our call, we need to sit and think, you know, how do I feel? And how can I maintain this state? And how will I act inside the state? You know, then we need to go out and do our work. And where our work is, is where we're feeling bad. So go and find your triggers, you know, go and hang out with the people who get your goat. And most of all, try to hang out with like worldly people, so to speak. You know, don't just like run in spiritual circles. And, and there's something to be said about that. They say when you're starting your spirituality, be careful. Um, only hang out with people who, who are also on the path. Because the last thing you want is to be ridiculed. You know, if you hang out with too many like atheist psychologists, they will slam you for, for the spiritual path. 
You know, because when the atheist looks at Hindu gods, what they see is a pagan culture worshipping many-handed, many-headed beings. What they're not seeing is that these beings are metaphors, you know. They look at the Rig Veda and they see hymns to the rain god to bring down the rain. They are missing the lines that say all is one, all deities are manifestations of the one, you know. So these people won't get it and you don't want to be around those, like, that energy, you know. But at the same time, Rumi's guru sent him to the bar to hang out with the drunkards, to ground him so he'd be less high and mighty about his spirituality, you know? So my best advice to you is we meet, we have sangha, we share our spiritual concerns, we have our teachers, but let's like go to the gym and like do worldly stuff, watch TV with our friends, you know, be grounded and be in the world and pursue our interests. And I often say, don't make a living out of spirituality, you know? Like, go in. And if you feel called to do it, if you feel, you know, whatever. But it's nice to have something else in your life, you know. But, and they say, don't spill the cup of Hermes. So try not to talk about your spirituality too much with others, especially those who are not also on the path, you know. So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's good for now. I think we did cover a lot, at least that which we benefited from covering. All right, Nish, good night. Good night, guys. Good night, Christina. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Good night. Thank you so much, Nish. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Nick, for coming and hanging out. It's a joy to have you. Such a joy. And Caroline, thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night.